Warning, the following contains spoilers pertaining to the show and subject matter discussed. Also, strong language and adult content may be included. Listener discretion is advised. Thank you. Hey, how did it go? First dance classes in New York are officially under my belt. Nice. Which ones did you end up doing? I started the morning off with a ballet, of course, then got moving with a tap class, and finished with a jazz class, which really was just perfect. Oh yeah? Why is that? We did a combination in Fosse. Just saying, is there any more iconic a style than Fosse? I mean, I'm sure there is, but it's just so recognizable. Well, then you're really going to love the show tonight. <laughs> oh, yeah? Didn't even think about that. Well, then let's head home so I can freshen up. We had a whole, we've got a wholesome show about sex, murder, and jazz to get to. Welcome to Stage Whisper. I'm your host, Hope Bird, and with me is my co-host, Andrew Cortez. Today, we are going to be discussing the legendary, the landmark show, Chicago. So hurry and take your seats. It looks like the show is starting. Hi everyone, and welcome to Stage Whisper. Come on boys, why don't we paint the town? And all that jazz. That's right, today we are delving into the seedy, boisterous, and hopping world that is Chicago. This show has stopped the presses not once, but twice on Broadway. And for this episode, we are mainly going to be focusing on the revival. But first, let's get a little background to this hit show. The musical was inspired by a play written by Maureen Dallas Watkins in 1927. The satire was based on two completely unrelated court cases that took place in 1924, whom Watkins has covered for the Chicago Tribune as a reporter. She wrote the play as a class assignment while she was attending the Yale Drama School. To avoid confusion with the rights and creative members involved, the play is now titled Play Ball when it's performed. The two women who inspired the Killer Diller duo each were acquitted in their trials and many of the details made debuts in the show. Beulah May Anan was the inspiration for Roxy. She shot a man in the back whom she was having an affair with. She claimed they had both been drinking and got into a disagreement. There was a gun on the bed that they both reached for, but she got it first. In reality, he was putting on his hat and coat when she shot him. She sat drinking cocktails for four hours while listening to the same song on her record player while she watched him die. She then called her husband to say that she had just killed a man who had tried to rape her. She told many versions of the story, including saying that he tried to kill her because she was leaving him to return to her husband. Her final story that led to her acquittal was that she told the man that she was pregnant and with his baby, and he tried to kill her. Her husband stood by her the entire trial, paid for the best attorneys, and the day after the trial, she left him because he was too slow. She would go on to have four husbands in the next four years and die of tuberculosis. Belva Gardner inspired the character of Velma Kelly. She was arrested for killing a married man who was found shot in his car. She was found in her apartment with blood-soaked clothes on the floor. She admitted that she had been drinking at various bars and jazz clubs, had been in the car with the man, and that she carried a gun for protection. She admitted to having an affair with the gentleman as well. During the trial, the man's co-workers said that Belva was a possessive lover who had made previous attempts on the man's life. She is quoted by saying, No woman can love a man enough to kill him. They aren't worth it because there are always plenty more. Her defense was that there was no proof he didn't shoot himself. And that led her to uh, her acquittal. Her husband filed for divorce two years later, claiming she was abusive and an alcoholic. 
The divorce was never finalized, and she died of natural causes at the old age of 80, ten years before the musical was debuted. Later in 1927, Cecil B. DeMille made a silent film version with the same title. The movie was a sharp contrast to the play. The original script by Watkins was harsh, satirical, and cynical. Many of these themes would not be able to pass the strict sensory boards that DeMille had to appease, so he stirred the film in a little bit more of a melodramatic direction. The story was adapted again in 1942 um, in a film starring Ginger Rogers called Roxy Hart. But in this version, Hart was actually innocent of the charges against her. Gwen Verdon, who was married to Bob Fosse, read the play in the 1960s and asked her husband about the possibility of creating a musical adaptation. While Watkins was alive, Fosse approached her a number of times to ask for the rights, but he was always declined. When she died in 1969, her estate sold the rights to Richard Fryer, Gwen Verdon, and Bob Fosse. Kandarin Ebb modeled each number on a traditional vaudeville number to make it explicit to make the explicit comparison between justice and show business and contemporary society it was true that in the early 1920s chicago's press and public were obsessed with the subject of homicides committed by women their cases were tried in a high profile manner with a backdrop of a changing view of a woman the jazz age brought a never before seen perspective on women There was a long string of acquittals from Cook County in Chicago, Illinois, all of which were by juries of female murderers. At the time, all juries were made up of men, and the penalty if women were found guilty would be death by hanging. Cook County was gaining the reputation of being a place where attractive female presenting women could not be convicted. The Chicago Tribune would print details for the women's lives written by women reporters that had the reputation for focusing on the plight of women, attractiveness, and redemption. The press covered all of these murders like they were celebrities. All right, still hanging in there with us? Great. Now let's get back to the current production. So, the design team for the current production. The set was by John Lee Beatty, costumes by William Ivy Long, Lights by Ken Billington, sound design by Scott Lair, hair by Ronaldo Beauchamp, music by John Kander, lyrics by Fred Ebb, book by Fred Ebb and Bob Fosse, directed by Walter Bobby, choreographed or choreography by Bob Fosse, and the choreography in the style of Bob Fosse by Anne Rinking. The original musical first opened on Broadway on June 3, 1975 at the 46th Street Theater, now known as the Richard Rogers Theater. It ran on Broadway for 936 performances, closing on August 27, 1977. The revival opened at the Ambassador Theater on November 14, 1996, and is still running today. The current number of performances are at 9,692. To this date, it is the longest-running musical revival an American musical on Broadway. The original production was nominated for 11 Tony Awards, but unfortunately won none that evening. The fortunes of the revival, however, would be much different. The revival would be nominated for eight Tony Awards and Dance Away with six. Best Actor in a Musical, James Naughton, who played Billy Flynn. Best Actress in a Musical, B.B. Newworth, who played Velma Kelly. Best Choreography and Ranking, Best Direction, Walter Bobby. Best Lighting Design, Ken Billington. And Best Musical Revival, Chicago. (laughs) (laughs) Okay, so that was a lot of information. But now that we've got it out of our way, let's dig into the actual story. Velma Kelly is a vaudeville performer who welcomes the audience to tonight's show. Interplayed with the opening number, the scene cuts to February 14, 1928, in the bedroom of a wannabe chorus girl, Roxy Hart, 
where she murders Fred Casely as he attempts to break off an affair with her. Roxy convinces her husband, Amos, that the victim was a burglar, and Amos agrees to take the blame. Roxy expresses her appreciation of her husband's willingness to do anything for her. However, when the police mention the deceased's name, Amos realizes that Roxy had lied to him. With both Roxy and Amos furious at each other for the other's betrayal, Roxy confesses and is arrested. She is sent to the women's block of the Cook County Jail, where several women accused of killing their lovers are held. Among the inmates is Velma Kelly, revealing herself to have been involved in the death of her husband and sister after she caught them in the spread eagle, though she denies committing the act on account of blacking out from the sight. The block is presided over by matron Mama Morton, whose system of taking bribes perfectly suits her clientele. She has helped Velma become the media's top murderer of the week and is acting as a booking agent for Velma's big return to, blo- to vaudeville. Velma is not happy to see Roxy, who is stealing not only her limelight, but also her lawyer, Billy Flynn. Roxy convinces Amos to pay for Billy Flynn to be her lawyer, though Amos lacks the funds. Eagerly awaited, uh, awaited by his all-women clientele, Billy sings his anthem, complete with a chorus of fan dancers. Billy takes Roxy's case before realizing Amos doesn't have the money. To make up the difference, he turns the case into a media circus and rearranges her story for consumption by a sympathetic tabloid columnist, Mary Sunshine, hoping to sell the proceeds in an auction. Roxy's press conference turns into a ventriloquist act, with Billy uh, dictating a new version of the story, uh, or a new version of the truth, to the reporters while Roxy mouths the words. Roxy becomes the most popular celebrity in Chicago, as she boastfully proclaims while planning for her future career in vaudeville. As Roxy's fame grows, Velma's notoriety subsides, and, in an act of desperation, she tries to talk Roxy into recreating the sister act. Roxy turns her down, only to find her own headlines replaced by the latest sordid crime of passion. Separately, Roxy and Velma realize that there is no one they can count on but themselves, and Roxy decides that being pregnant in prison would put her back on the front page. Act two starts with Velma returning to introduce the opening act. Resentful of Roxy's manipulation of the system and ability to seduce a doctor into saying Roxy is pregnant. As Roxy emerges, she sings gleefully of the future of her unborn, non-existent, child. Amos proudly claims paternity, but still, nobody notices him. And Billy exposes holes in Roxy's story by noting that she and Amos had not had sex in four months, meaning if Roxy were pregnant, the child is definitely not Amos's, and hopes that Amos will divorce her and look like a villain, which Amos almost does. Velma tries to show Billy all the tricks she has planned for her trial, which Roxy treats skeptically. Roxy, upset with being treated like a common criminal and considering herself a celebrity, has a heated argument with Billy and fires him. Billy warns her that her kind of celebrity is fleeting and that she would be just as famous hanging from a noose. At that moment, Roxy witnesses one of her fellow inmates, a Hungarian woman who insisted on her innocence but could not speak English and whose public lawyer refused to defend her, become the first woman to be executed in Chicago. The trial date arrives, and now, freshly terrified, Roxy runs back to Billy, who calms Roxy by suggesting she will be fine so long as she makes a show of the trial. Billy uses Amos as a pawn, turning around and insisting that Amos is actually the father of Roxy's child. As Roxy recounts Billy's carefully crafted false narrative of the night of Fred's murder, with Fred reappearing on the stage in flashback, she stills all of Velma's shtick down to the rhinestone garter to the dismay of Mama and Velma. As promised, Billy gets Roxy acquitted, but just as the verdict is announced, some even more sensational crime pulls the press away and Roxy's fleeting celebrity life is over. Billy leaves, done with the case, admitting that he only did it for the money. 
Amos tries to get Roxy to come home and forget the ordeal, but she is more concerned with the end of her brief run of fame and admits that she isn't pregnant, at which point a fed-up Amos leaves her. The final scene cuts to a Chicago vaudeville theater where Roxy and Velma, acquitted offstage, are performing a new act in which they bittersweetly sing about modern life. The former Mary Sunshine, revealed during the trial to actually be a man in drag, takes his natural male form of a pushy vaudeville promoter, shaping Roxy and Velma's dance to make it as sexy as possible. The show ends with a brief finale as Roxy and Velma thank their audience. The The end. end. now discuss the show and all that jazz <laughs> we're supposed to discuss the things we like and didn't like and and this is the thing about this show there's a few things I didn't like about this show but it really wasn't about the show it was about the experience of going to see the show it has nothing to do with the show and since returning to Broadway those things have kind of like resolved themselves <laughs> Yes. So I really can't say that I don't like anything about the show. I absolutely love the show. Right. I mean, it's an it's a titillizing story. You know yeah. what I mean? It's just <laughs> it's it's dark humor at its best. Right. It it embraces and kind of this is gonna sound strange, but just follow me. It embraces and tickles that dark curiosity that yes. all human have. The fact that they're basically being like, we're going to tell you this great, lovely, wholesome show, you know, and they're 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 playing it up like it's a family-friendly show, and it's like, well, what's the show about? Sex, murder, and, and booze and everything, and it's like, what? <laughs> you know, but the way they present it, it, it is fun. that. It's like a circus. I mean, who doesn't want to be one of the six merry murderesses of Cook County? Right. You, <laughs> the, Everyone in that show has blood on their hands except for Amos. And the um, Hungarian. And the Hungarian, right. Mm-hmm. Um, Which, but, but, but to be fair, I mean, to make it dark, you never know if she truly is not guilty. She, she pushes it, and you, you are led to believe she's not guilty. And I mean, I do think she's not guilty. I think she is the lamb led to slaughter. But for definitively, we can say Amos is has no blood on his hand, right? Mm-hmm. Everybody else is is out for something and has some sin, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and you should be rooting against them because they're a villain, right. and yet you find yourself completely in love with them and cheering for them. Who doesn't love Mama Matron Mama Morton? You know, right? Who doesn't love Billy Flynn and his big number? Who doesn't love Roxy and Velma? You know, I mean, mm-hmm. these are horrible, horrible people. Yeah. And if it was any if it was in any other context, you'd be like, these, they're awful. They're terrible humans. They took a life, and yet we're just like, eh, I'm right. having fun. You know, I, 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 I think we'll get into that later. But I just, I think it's at the end of the day, it's downright fun. I. Love the story. I think the humor is so on spot. The dialogue and the vernacular used in the show is so amazing. It's timely and bouncy. And and the reason why I want to mention, I, I think it's so important to mention the vernacular, is at this point in history, our American English are we really, talking about nineteen twenties? Yes. Okay. Yeah, when when the show is based, really went through this huge transition. Definitely. With the with the addition of speakeasies and that, you know, this is when you really got some interesting words like pop, fizzle, turkey, jive. You really started getting these words that didn't exist. In, I mean, turkey existed, but I get what you're saying. Well, but but outside of the bird, yeah, to use as, as as something else. You know, you really started getting these colloquialisms that that didn't exist in the American um, vernacular. Vernacular. I mean, the 1920s, our vocabulary as a country exploded. Oh, yeah. Well, and a lot of that has to do with immigration and 
um, you know, just the whole melting pot exploding well, and, 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 and the, the music. industrial revolution and the music. Yeah. Our, our, our language was reflecting the music. Mm-hmm. That's why it was getting so... I can't remember the exact word, but that's why you had these hard consonants. Pop, bang, boom, uh, uh, whoopee, and all that. It was it was rhythmic. It was like that music, you know? Um, mm-hmm. And, and I, I mock it, you know, today, but you, you hear a lot of the, the slang from the youths today, from youngins. <laughs> but, you know, it it's the same thing. It reflects a lot of the mo- more pop music today and, and what you're hearing. It's musical. It, I mean, at the end of the day, language is still music. Um, but the fact that this show was written 50 years later and it's still... I guess just as current, if you will. Mm-hmm. We're doing, we're, we have this really great jazz show and it feels new. You know, you feel transported. It's brilliant. They didn't modernize it at all. If, if that makes any sense, if I'm making any sense, it's, it's a time capsule. And it's been there for over 25 years and it's still a time capsule that exists there. Right. You know. Definitely. Well, and I love the the theme of the vaudeville yes. parts of the show. I mean, especially to use vaudeville to tell the story. Well, again, I think it's that family friendly thing. You would that that was the entertainment back in the day, right? But also, the vaudeville shows also had that dark underbelly as yes. well yes. of being, you know, that place, that den of, you know. Uh, Obscenity yes. is the word I want. Yeah. Yes. Uh, anything would go, and what's being put on stage is not the same as what's being put off stage. Right. It, it's it's the early roots of the theater and all that. But I just, like I said, I love that. I also love with the vaudeville. In vaudeville, you got all sorts of different acts. Yes. And that also, I felt like, existed in the show. And now... A soft, now a tap dance. We got that soft shoe tap dance. When the Hungarian girls hung, it's a famous disappearing act. Right, and you have all these different um, like show themes, and what you also get from it is like Billy Flynn would be the headliner. Yes, um, yes. And of course, why wouldn't the lawyer be the headliner? Because of He's how the they pre- of ceremonies. Exactly, yes. like how they present themselves. Yes. And they're going to be the jack of all trades who can do a tap dance and a big show-stopping number and the lover and, you know. It allowed for the looseness of the story. Yes, to play. <laughs> exactly. Which was brilliant because it almost felt like newspaper clippings. Yeah. And I love that because the press was really central to this. It felt like a media frenzy. Right. You know, and well, so to if we had this straight shooting story like most typical musicals, especially with this revival with the set melding in, I, it wouldn't be as effective. You need to have that unconventional, you know, now we're going to go to a different paper and here's the next act. Yes. You know. Um, I loved also that the uh, the conductor was used as a character and a narrator. I mean, what I'm 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 hard pressed to think of another show where the conductor one starts the show like that, but two is like an actual character handing props, introducing numbers, interacting with the cast, right? You know, and I'm just like, this isn't what you went to school for. I'm not sure this is the game you got in here for, but ta-da! You're here now, <laughs> and you're loving it. You know. So um, I mentioned the set. And, and again, we're talking mainly about the uh, revival. And I love... The revival that's run way longer than the original. Yes. And, and we'll get to that. But I love the big band setup. It's like a big... Uh, it's a big band setup. Um, it's staged like... Um, like a, uh, a... I don't want to say like a, a, a supper club almost. The three-tiered yeah. big band. Um, and, and that's the set. That's the simplicity of the set. Then we've got some chairs that might come in. We have some um, elements that come in that are like fantastical or fantasy elements to just kind of help push the show agenda while also like showing that we're stepping out of reality and into this make-believe vaudeville. But on the whole, it's, it's chairs, a desk. That that's that's basically it. The lights kind of do the rest. Yeah. You know, the and the cell block tango, it's the lights that create the jail bars. Um, wow, I mean, the lighting really, mm-hmm. really helped with the, the storytelling. I, you know, of course, you've got that great spotlight, 
for the vaudeville showy feel. Mm-hmm. Then you also have like the beautiful like blushes to. And the oh, what were really there fl- blushes or am I imagining it? <laughs> it's in um, all I care about is love yeah. when he's doing the fan scene and it's this beautiful pink spot and everything. Um, also, I love the shrinking spot on Amos. Yes. And it's too soon. And I'm like, oh, Amos. Like, womp womp. I also love the, the, the shadows that were created by the lighting. Usually in most shows, like, that's a really, like, you know, the purpose of lighting is to, one, set mood, but to, you know. Illuminate you, the face. Yeah, you need to be able to see it. But in this show, it was like, no, but we need shadows. So, especially with those background characters, especially with those men. Mm-hmm. Men were never, men in the show were not a good thing at all. Um, except for Amos, sweet Amos. And on the sides where they're sitting, those, you know, to, to light him just so, but then we see those rigid angles of their face, their nose, those cheekbones and that, really mm-hmm. making them look aggressive or whatnot. It's like, that's, that's good lighting. Well, and also to give them anonymity, because it's not about the men, even though they're the, quote, victims. It's really the women that are the victims. Right, because you, again, you feel bad for them. It, it makes you question about, you know, yeah, these women committed a, a bad crime, but it's also like... They're uh, women of their circumstance. Right. It's like, yeah, but he's not entirely innocent. So how... Exactly. Oh. Exactly. Um, I think you can't talk about the show without talking about the costumes. Especially yes. because for the time in which they the, the show, um, the revival premiered, it still was very... Um, taboo to see that much skin, body, skin and body. Like there's, it's basically you can see every outline of their bodies. You can see their hip indents. You can see their, um, their rib indents. Their col, their, their collarbones. Like you can see their full body figure. Even though they're wearing clothing, they're, they're wearing they're, we're wearing yeah. lingerie. I was gonna say they're basically wearing lingerie, but in the most tasteful way possible. It's meant to be sexy and sultry, but not in, not in a lustful. No, it's kind of like how do I like that dirty hooker feeling, but not as in like oh she's dirty I don't want to touch her. More like it's seducing. It's in like the highest. Way. I, right. I know what you're almost like a call girl. Not necessarily. Uh, so what I'm trying to say is like it's the it's that um, you see a woman of the night or we're we're gonna call them a uh i'm trying to remember the the pc term a sex worker sex worker yes sorry so you see a sex worker who is basically showing everything but she's proud of her body and so she doesn't want to hide it sex positive yeah 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 but so she's showing everything and it's it's dirty because you can see everything but it's not dirty in the way that it's like, ew, gross. It's dirty as in, like, you have no shame. You have nothing to hide. And that's not normal. Well, I think what it is is, you know, on the men, you know, tight pants. And then, of course, you've got the the shirts that kind of show off the chest. And who cares? Mm-hmm, and the bullers. But and- the thing with the women is, with these revealing clothes or these tight clothes or what have you, I don't necessarily see it necessarily as sexy or lurid. I see it more as empowering because the women are the strong characters, are the strong uh, motivators and, and the things that drive the, the story. Well, yeah, because they're unapologetically themselves and, and a, their bodies. And, and at this time where the story takes place, to have that much power, why not give them all the power they can get? And to be able to own that mm-hmm. self-esteem or that... Yeah, I mean, there's something very... I mean, to have the confidence to basically go out and parade naked in front of people, I think that that is a positive thing. Yes. Because it shows that you do not care what others think and that you feel good about yourself enough to show everyone every part of you, which is such an incredible amount of vulnerability. Yes. Um, But also through that vulnerability comes power because most people, especially men, wield power through shame. And women... Do the opposite. They yes. will power through 
being shameless. I love that I wrote down just they wore just enough clothing to keep the censors out, but also enough to communicate and highlight who everyone is. Yeah. I don't know who the censors are anymore, but I mean listen, this is twenty twenty one, so yeah, there are no censors anymore, but at the time there was. <laughs> I love the pin up hypersexual look that comes from this and I, I and I say the pin up look because of the hair. Mm-hmm. The way that the hair is styled. Um, except for three characters who are not pinnuped and hypersexual, and that would be Amos and Billy Flynn, and then, of course, Mary Sunshine, until Mary Sunshine is revealed to be a he when they no longer wear a shirt, they're in suspenders, it's very um, cabaret, the MC from Cabaret look. Um, but even Matron Mama Morton has done up sexy with that plunging neckline and, and boosting bra and everything like that, you know? Um, yeah, I mean... Well, because I think that the the subtlety, the subtle message through the costume is um, women's bodies are empowering. I And I, you know, I can totally support that. The music is iconic. Uh, it's so well written. And I love that every character gets their own song. You know, yeah. I, everyone has like a theme song, you know. Um, yeah. Well, and I, I just think that that goes to speak as well to uh, Kander and Ebb being able to create such a um, iconic world that when you think of jazz now in a modern day, you think Chicago, the musical. Yeah. And so the fact that they were able to take this genre that does so much and did so much and had progressed so much by the time they wrote this musical that they could create an iconic jazz sound... I mean, just speaks to their genius. Well, I'll just say three words and everybody knows the song. All that jazz. Yeah. And all that jazz. Da, 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 da. I mean, everybody knows that song. You know, mm-hmm. um, I do love um, Mr. Cellophane. You know, that's his song. And then um, the next time Amos comes in and after the court and he goes, my exit music, please. And the spotlight just like goes off of him and he goes, okay. Well, that and then the conductor just completely ignores them. Yeah. I, that He could have gotten his exit music there, but Kendra and Eb saw, like they read, they could read the field, they knew what everyone needed, they knew how, the music is just brilliantly written that way. Well, balance, it's, it's and orchestrated it's, it's so well. It's intertwined with the character. Yep. You can't, this is what I love about Kendra and Eb in all of their shows, is you cannot subtract the music from the story. Yes. You can't have one without the other because Absolutely. they are so intertwined on so many levels. Yes. There, I mean, yes, there's a book to Chicago, but if you just did the book, it's not even close to the, the story. You're yep. missing so much. Yep. And then speaking of something that, that Chicago wouldn't be without. The iconic imagery that is Fosse. It's choreography. It's yeah. the choreography. There's nothing quite like Fosse. Well, and I feel like this, I mean, Fosse has done a lot of different things and is known for very many things, but I feel like if you say Bob Fosse nowadays, the iconic look you get is Chicago. When people make a move, it's typically something from Chicago. The shoulders down, the hat being grabbed and that, you know, it's beautiful. This, the, Particularly this show, it's beautiful. It's sensuous and expressive and alive. It's refined. You're, it's... To, to basically boil it down, you're basically watching sex on stage in the most clean and appropriate way, an artistic way. The way that bodies intertwine and are touching well, and it's is like, beautiful. And it's like a work of art. You you see like the, the repeated movements that are Fosse movements are the paint strokes. And when they come together, yes. it's a painting. And you just, you can't help but look at it and go like, yeah, that's a Fosse. And you know? Movements. Uh, one thing I noticed, I was really wanted to pay attention to, but in the opening number, I don't remember seeing a lot of movements repeated. The lines were repeated, words were repeated, but not necessarily movements. And that's mm-hmm. something I really appreciate about Bob Fosse is it's like we're telling a story, and there's three levels of Fosse, and I can see all the different levels: high, medium, low, and we're gonna keep it close to the body, or we're gonna put it further away from the body, and this is gonna be a role. Mm-hmm. And, I mean, and then what's you know like. Keeping the movement, uh, the the push of the movement from the hips. Uh, yes, and then being sexy without being overly sexual. The fact that we could just being roll our shoulder. Being sexy without being sh- sexual, you mean? Y- yes. I mean, the fact that Roxy <coughs> can just roll her shoulder or move her wrist ever just so, and it's the most sensuous thing you've seen on stage. 
you know, it's seductive in the highest way. And that's Fosse. It's absolutely brilliant. The, and it's simple. It's it's iconic. Oh, I can't get over it. The show has had several notable cast members, including Gwen Verdon, Cheetah Rivera, B.B. Newworth, Jerry Orbach, Jerry! Uh, Joel Gray, Mel B., Charlotte D'Ambrose, Norm Lewis, Christopher Sieber, Patrick Swayze, Tony Yazbek, Patti LaBelle, Todrick Hall, David Vogel, Chrissy Whitehead, and many, 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 many others. Let's talk about the impact this show has had on theater and its history. So theatrical impact. It is the longest running American musical and the longest running revival on Broadway. In fact, I believe it was yesterday. We're recording today on a Wednesday, which is late for us, but I believe it was yesterday, Tuesday. It marked its 25th anniversary here on Broadway. I think it was Sunday. Oh, was it Sunday? Oh, either yeah, way, it was, Sunday. it was marked 25 years here on Broadway. The mayor came out, did a proclamation. B.B. Newworth was there. Uh, it was brilliant, you know. Um, uh, it was incredible. So they've been here 25 years. The Ambassador Theater is going to be renamed like the Candor and Ebb or something. But and it's 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 been here for 25 years as a revival. Yeah, but that's that's the American musical that. That audiences have chosen to be the the one that we yeah the iconic American music for which now. Is funny for what, now. That's right. But what's funny about it is it's named after a city that it's not even performing in, which I just it always makes me laugh a little bit because it's like yeah we're gonna go see Chicago. Well, it's you like, know, well we're in New York. The city. feud between New York and Chicago runs deep, and this is a show that kind of bashes Chicago. So no wonder it plays well here. <laughs> Um, it was a huge mark of success for many people involved in the show, including Candor and Ebb, Bob Fosse, and let us not forget the late, great Anne Rankin. Um, you know, this, uh, Anne Rankin was um, the uh, um, choreographer for the revival, because if memory serves you right. I she mean, was also in the cast. Yeah, she played the original. Um, original revival of Elma Kelly, I believe. No, I think she played Roxy. Because I believe B.B. Newworth played. Um, Velma, you're yeah. right. Though, D- double, check who, ne- double check who um, uh, Anne Rankin played, but I'm going to come I on about say, her. I will say, well, really quick before we go on that, just as a side note, uh, B.B. Newworth has played every lead character in the show at some point in her career. I believe, And speaking of which, B.B. Um, Newworth, by the way, um, a woman of her 40s, I'm just going to say. But the woman has pins like you wouldn't believe. She can dance up a storm. I'm sure she can go play uh, Chicago today. But Anne Rankin, memory says, right, I think Bob Fosse might have passed by the time they did the revival. So she was the one that basically brought the choreography of Bob Fosse back for the revival. That's why she's credited with choreography for the show. Well, she's credited in the style of Bob Fosse choreography. Um so she replaced oh she replaced uh verdon in the role of roxy ah okay in okay the original okay okay i knew i she was like played. i know she had played a couple of different parts yeah, but, yeah yeah you know um so um also to add to it i felt like it really brought an american story to the stage in an American form that audience love to eat up. And what I mean by that is, and, I, and for this I go back to the original, um, to the original um, production of this back in the 70s. So I, I can't, I mean, Oklahoma, mm-hmm. I think was a very American story, but it united two American uh Creations, jazz and musical theater. Yeah. Like the musical. Because those it, are the quintessential American art forms. Right. And then, of course, our obsession with murder and crime and all that. Put all, Mix all that together, put it up on the stage. That is an American story. Yeah. You know? And, of course, a redemption well, story, too. Exactly. America uh, loves a redemption, redemption story. Redemption story, but also 
loves a uh, not only a redemption story but an underdog story. Yes, which is you why know. shows like Hamilton and Wicked and all that do so Americans well. Americans love their underdogs. Thank you, England. And and to <laughs> to mention um, something, um, it also provides a platform for many actors to make their Broadway debut, particularly like big wig famous people. A lot of them will do a stint in Chicago. Mm-hmm. Um, thinking like Cuba Gooding Jr. or, or Wendy S- Williams. Yeah, they'll they'll step into a role for for a, a short amount engagement. of time. Yeah. Um, <coughs> excuse me. <coughs> this is a show because of its long running uh, standing and, and just dedicated audience that they can allow for that. I think with other shows like we've mentioned, Hamilton and Wicked, you really that's a harder show to to put someone else in. But Chicago, because of its simplicity and whatnot, it is well, easier and to it's fit. vaudeville setup really lends itself to anyone stepping into the shoes of the role Mm -hmm. because vaudeville itself was designed for any performer to just kind of ebb and flow in of the show yeah um so i also think that the reason why um you know chicago is so successful especially for others to come in and see it is because they don't have to fight to try to keep audiences because audiences keep coming back to it yes whether and whether that be american audiences or uh, audiences from around the world because it is quintessential, but it's not quite the um, the I don't want to say hot ticket item, but it's not like it's not next to impossible to get a ticket, and that's the best part. Yes, it's it. Yeah, I don't know how else to put it. It's not like Wicked or Hamilton where it, it, you have to buy tickets. It's like a popular years show. It's a popular show. That continues to sell out audiences, but it's one that is still accessible. Yes, it's accessible like Phantom. Yes. Um, moving on to societal impact, it's a great familiar show for first-timers to introduce and experience Broadway. So kind of piggybacking on that. You know, a lot of people that come here and maybe they're there for just like a four or five day stay or whatever, and they want to see a quick show, they'll recognize that title and maybe they'll go to TKTS and there is you know, 60 tickets available for that night's show, and then they get it. So um, there we go. You know, that, that, that gets them into this, and who knows what else they'll see. Um, the other thing I think that's important is it may, it made, and still, in my opinion, makes people aware of the perversion of the American justice system. Yes. Though which... we're laughing about and enjoying, and we've had a good ha-ha-ha about this, about women getting off the murder and everything, do keep in mind... That this is, you know, humor and everything like that. This still comes from a place of truth, mm-hmm. and this stuff still happens. The just our justice system, and 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 as my my dear wife here and I have been on a Law and Order kick, <laughs> you know, the the justice system we have, I believe here is one of the most is one of the greatest in the world because it is imperfect. It's always changing, and because it's imperfect, it. it betters society as a whole, not the individual. But that being said, if you pervert the system, it fails. And it fails everyone. Right. And I think that, I think for me, my biggest frustration with the uh, American justice system is the lack of not necessarily communication, but like follow through and cooperation from the justice system to actively have like that a mirror effect on the law system so that things are ebbing and flowing and changing as they need to with society. Well, Which, and, and we could debate this th- all This day, This will be our other, you know, Soapbox po- podcast sponsored by Zest, you know. <laughs> but the show really, you know, in a, in a fun way just points out that, remember, it's based on a true story. So the fact that these two women killed people Right. And got off with it, and you li- and you listen to it, and you watch it, and you're like, "How?" With overwhelming evidence, that would never fly today. And it's like, "Oh, but things like this happen all the time." Yeah. You know, people get off for the the silliest things, or you know, they can make the 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 weirdest claims for innocence or what have you. But I think that it's important that this show, being here for 25 years, reminds you. That, especially now in this age of 24-hour media, um, the, the justice system can be perverse, 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 and um, we have to be very careful with that. 
you know, we have to be careful not to ha see the smoke and mirrors and be blindsided by the Billy Flynn's. It's really important that we block out the noise and pay attention to the facts. Facts are always important. Pay close attention to the facts, not to the loudest person in the room. Right. Soapbox over. <laughs> <laughs> um, one thing I didn't write down, but we did bring up, I also think that the other societal impact of the show, and I think it's kind of uh, uh, one of those, uh, not subtle, but... Um, you don't notice it, like, right away. It's kind of one of those things. That Slow you heat. Well, no, no, no. Like, like, you know, you absorb it like a sponge uh, mm -hmm. kind of things. It comes is, through like osmosis. Yes, is the empowerment of women. Mm -hmm. With whether it be the costumes or the movements or the fact that they're strong or they're justified or whatever it may be, I think this show is really empowering to women. Right. And, I mean, there could be a little bit of um, interpretation as to, um, you know, the the feminist viewpoints of the show mm -hmm. um but i think one thing that just really makes this um kind of relevant is that as women if we want to be empowered we have to give up our privilege of being seen as a meek woman mm. yeah yeah so is the show still relevant absolutely our society and its systems are still out of whack and corrupt, and a show like Chicago reminds us about just how corrupt and even the noblest of people or institutions can be. So in a very lighthearted way, it does this. It also reminds us that at the end of the day, we're all thinners, and even the kindest, sweetest person is just a wolf or a reporter <laughs> in sheep's clothing. Things may not be what they appear. Right, and I think that, um, you know, they always say that you learn you learn something more through laughing about it than you do through crying about it. Yeah. Um, yeah. You know, so I think that uh, that's why satire is always going to be one of the best mediums to encourage social change. I agree. Um, because you have to be able to laugh at yourself because then you're actually admitting that there's a problem. I agree. Because there's truth in comedy. Dang Skippy. Thanks, uh, Del Close. London dropped its dignity. Yeah. So has France and Germany. Yeah. All hands are dancing to a raggedy melody full of originality. Sing it, though. The folks who live in sunny space. Give it out, give it out. Finally, as promised, we wanted to share some of our own personal stories about experiencing the show. So we've seen the show between the two of us about three times uh, in 2012, 2015, and most recently in the fall of 2021. Mm -hmm. Those of you listening to the Broadway Bulletin. Um, things that I remember that are amazing, I want to point out that in the most recent show we saw just a couple weeks ago, uh, the amazing Billy Flynn, who could sing... The hell out of the part. Oh my gosh, he was so good. Uh, and also, same show, <clears throat> the amazing Amos, whose comic timing and everything was so, so perfect. Mm -hmm. I mean, so perfect. I mean, I, as someone who, who one of those songs is in my book for that show... I just was looking at him. I'm like writing notes down. I'm like, this guy knows. What, yes, I want to. I want to steal some of these these actions and things he's doing because it's brilliant. You know. Mm -hmm. Um, I I remember just sitting uh, in the audience and like when the lights came up, it really just like it. I felt like I was in the movie, which I know sounds crazy, but for me, I experienced the movie before I ever experienced the stage show. Um, and so, you know, sometimes if you fall in love with the movie, you can get kind of worried that the live show isn't going to live up to it, but it's its own thing. And seeing it live for the first time made me realize that it is its own thing and that there, you know, I don't know, it's just this, it's, just this beautiful, sexy, sultry little nugget um, that I just enjoyed experiencing for the first time. Yeah. I remember seeing Charlotte D'Ambrose in the role of Velma Kelly couple nice. of years, back in 2015. And that remember her. She was amazing. Mm -hmm. She was so good. So good. Right. It was, just like, it, was, it was like a second nature. It was basically like she was drinking water. She was Velma Kelly. Yeah. 
And then we had a, a friend of ours who was in uh, one of the companies. His name oh, was Lenny. It was in the original Revival Company. Yeah, his name is Lenny Daniel. And up until uh, we came back from COVID, his silhouette was on a poster outside the theater. He was the iconic grabbing the bowler hat and looking down right, right and so outside the theater. Oh, and any of us who have worked with him, we like to go and get a picture with that. And uh, we tag him in and we're like, look, we're here with Lenny. <laughs> you know, uh, we went, like I said, we, we saw the show just a couple weeks ago and unfortunately that poster is now gone. Yeah, I couldn't find it. Um, they've recently changed all the posters, obviously, to... 25th acknowledge, anniversary. And, and acknowledge, like, Broadway's back in that. But, you know... We've got a piece of history every time we were here in New York and visited Broadway and be like, well, quick, let's go say hi to Lenny. You know. <laughs> Where things are turning to normal and hopefully keeping that way. Come on, everybody, do your part. We look forward to seeing the show again. You'll be able to catch Chicago eight times a week at the Ambassador Theater at 219 West 49th Street in New York City. Also, just a quick update on the return of Broadway. Phone rings, door chimes, in comes company. Company returns to the Jacobs Theater eight times a week. You can hear about this show and many more that we have been seeing on the Broadway Bulletin every Tuesday and Saturday. So until next time, I'm Andrew Cortez. And I'm Hope Bird. Reminding you to turn off your cell phones. Unwrap your candies and please keep your masks on. And keep talking about the theater. In a stage whisper. Thank you. Two friends from old New York town met in a foreign land. One sang the praises of If you like what you hear, please leave a five-star review, like, and subscribe. You can also find us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at Stage Whisper Pod. And feel free to reach out to us with your comments and personal stories at stagewhisperpod at gmail.com. Our theme song is Fox by Music for Wildlife. Other music on this episode provided by Quantum Jazz, The Good Louds, U.S. Army Blues, Sophie Tucker and Al Jolson, and Billy Murray. <laughs>